those of you who may not be from this area uh, may not know that Rock Hill was built on the back of mills. Uh, there was mills kind of spread out throughout Rock Hill, Highland Park Mill, the Aragon, the Bleachery, Salonese, Bowwater. Uh, each mill had its own community, so Highland uh, Park, which is just up on the hill, uh, there was stores and neighborhoods that were built around that, mill villages. Uh, Park Baptist Church gets its name from Highland Park Mill up, up the road. Um, of course, not everyone worked at a mill, but if you lived in Rock Hill, everyone was affected by the mill culture. The mills were the center of economic life in the city. Now imagine if each one of these mills, Highland Park, uh, the Aragon, the bleachery, each formed their own guild, their own set of, uh, you know, kind of a ruling um, uh, body. These guilds are often kind of very familiar in uh, the first century. Uh, they were organized, the organization of workers who bonded together pr to protect their economic uh, interests and, and their craft for secrets against, uh, for their vocation. So let's say if you had to work at the Aragon Mill, uh, one had to join the Aragon Guild. If you wanted to continue to, to receive raises or promotions, you would have to participate in the guild activities. Now, if you were a guild worker in the 1940s and the 1950s in Rock Hill, South Carolina, all the activities you'd probably be asked to participate in would not be offensive to Christians, because Christians were the majority. You may be asked to join a softball team, that was, that was common, or, or to go to church in the community. That was very, very common. Well, now imagine if the dominant religion of the 40s and 50s was not Christianity. What if it was overtly pagan? What if to join a, a, a guild? You had to participate in the activities of these um, and rituals of these guilds. What if you had to continue to rise up in the ranks of a mill or to have a promotion? You had to sacrifice animals in honor of the president of the United States or of the mayor of the town? What if you wanted to continue to, to increase uh, your status in the community that you actually had to go to a temple and have sex with a prostitute? Well, that seems shocking to us as Christians when Christianity has been such a mainstay in our, in our culture. But the people of Thyatira, the people who tried to live out their Christian faith in the first century, faced that very issue. What would you do? How would you provide for your family if you didn't participate in these rituals? You would lose your, your jobs. Would you reject these guild practices and, and starve? Or maybe you would participate in these activities, but you would do so not with, with the right heart and not show real devotion to what you're asked to do. Or maybe you would participate fully in the activities so you could gain more influence and, 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 and rise in the ranks so that you can have more influence at the mill. Well, these are just some of the questions that, like I said, these early Christians at Thyatira were faced with. Thyatira was a city uh, about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum on the road to Sardis. It wasn't really a well-known city. It didn't have a whole lot of wealth. It had all these different guilds that were certain different vocations. Uh, the town's economic and social life really centered around these guilds as Rock Hill life centered around uh, the mills. The, 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 the religious life of Thyatira was focused on the worship of Apollo, uh, the, the sun god, also the son of Zeus. Almost all worship was centered either at the temple of Apollo 
or in the, these guilds. It was a culture that was seeped in pagan worship. And that's exactly what first century Christians found themselves living in. And it was these Christians facing these hard questions on how to survive in the midst of this culture that Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, spoke to. So I pray as we study this letter to the church of Thyatira that you would empathize with their courage. Because I do believe they had moments of extreme courage. But also learn from their compromising spirit. So if you want to provide, follow along with the outline provided for you, just look in the bulletin. The first point this morning is the searching son of God. The searching son of God. As each of these letters begin in these seven to the churches, uh, Jesus kind of begins with, a, with his own descriptor identifying himself. So every church has their own description. Jesus tries, tries to highlight, really taken from the first chapter of Revelation of John's vision. Jesus begins this letter in Revelation 2.18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus begins by identifying himself as the Son of God, which is profound because that is the only time that appears in the book of Revelation. When you read John's other uh, epistles and his gospel, the Son of God title is all over the place. But here it's only, um, in, in, in Revelation, it's only here. Well, understand that Jesus is making a shot at the culture of Thyatira because they worshipped Apollo, the son of God Zeus. He was saying, well, no, there is only one son of God, Jesus Christ himself. He is defining himself as the supreme divine king in his opening words. Then he gives himself two descriptors, which is taken from the vision. Eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. If you recall, when we looked at that first vision, that first century audience would have known exactly what he meant. When he said eyes flames of fire and feet of burnished bronze, they would have known what that meant. The eyes of a flame of fire were this penetrating gaze of Jesus Christ. He sees and knows all. It's kind of like Superman with x-ray vision. He can kind of see into our hearts. Nothing will escape his gaze. As a Christian in Thyatira, they need to be more concerned with the searching gaze of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, than the surrounding culture around us. Then, the false god, the son of Zeus, Apollo. So Jesus drives this point home that he is the one who searches minds and hearts. He even says it in his rebuke and uh, later on in, in the letters. He says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. Be careful how you live, because the Lord sees and he will judge you accordingly. And here's the thing, when you see the, 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 the penetrating gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees perfectly, therefore he also will judge perfectly. When we stand before God at the end of time, he will judge us rightly for what we've done in this life. So this eye, the, the, the penetrating gaze of the Lord, the searching eyes of God. But we also see his strength. The feet like burnished bronze would have easily communicated that God is a strong warrior. The burnished bronze, in particular, would have been another attack at the people of Thyatira. 
The main guild in Thyatira was the, was the bronze, the, the, the polished bronze guild that, that would make military um, gear for uh, the army. And he was trying to, even, even, even Apollo, how he's pictured in, in, uh, in the Thyatira was a, was a warrior riding a horse with a double-edged axe. And here, what is Jesus saying? I am the one with the burnished bronze. I am the one who is the warrior king. I will execute my, my justice perfectly and with power. The Christians of Thyatira needed to be reminded of the searching strength of the Son of God. Not to bow down to false gods, but to hold fast to Him who sees and knows all. And beloved, we need the same reminder today. We need to, we not be asked in our culture here to bow down to, to idols like Apollo, physically participate in cult act of worships, but we are asked to bow down every day to the gods of our age to the idol of tolerance and sexual freedom. There is one God whose penetrating gaze sees and knows all. So when you live in our world and you live in our culture and you are tempted to bow down to the cultural idols of our age, Jesus would say, hold fast. Hold fast. I'm watching. The second thing we see here is the loving people of God. The loving people of God. So God searches us, and what do we see right here at the beginning is that not all is bad in Thyatira. It's only one verse, but I think this verse packs a pretty good punch and picture of, of the Christians in Thyatira. They were growing in faith and love. Look what verse 19 says. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. All things that would have been marked a believing community. They had love, they had faith, they had patient endurance. And it says at the end of that verse that your latter works exceed the first, meaning that you actually are growing in these things. You're growing in faith and you're growing in love. See, love and faith are essentials for the Christian church. Love, obviously, is probably more prevalent in our day, but in the book of Revelation, faith is probably the predominant theme. John wants people to have faith in Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Persevering faith is the overarching theme of this book, to conquer, to to continue in the faith. This church had faith, but it was their misunderstanding of love that started to corrupt this faith. Now, we know love is the strongest and most basic of Christian virtues. The two greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbors. Christian love is intoxicating for the gospel. Jesus says, by this all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. I am so thrilled as a pastor when I see God knitting our hearts together and allowing us to love each other. Uh, to love each other who don't look like us. To lay down our lives for each other. This is what the Bible says. By this we know love. That Jesus laid down his life for one another. We ought to do the same. First John 3.16 So we, we want to be known as a community of love. It is evident in our body. You know, as a pastor, I get this great privilege. Is I get to hear about what hap- what's happening in the life of our church. People just come up and tell me, oh, I did this. 
so and so had me over for for dinner. Oh, by the way, this person helped me out when I wasn't expecting it. The love of God is evident in our body. I am so so grateful for it. Jesus laid down his life for us and we show our love for each other by laying our life down. The heart of our faith is the gospel of love. Now, if you're here today and you are a non-Christian, you are kind of maybe searching, you're not really sure where you are at in your Christian walk, uh, I pray that you would come and witness. You would watch how we love each other. You'd watch our lives. And that our lives and how we care for each other would be a window to show you how much God loves you. Because here's the fascinating thing about God. God loves us even though we're sinners. <laughs> we make mistakes and we rebel against God, and yet God loves us. This is what we want to do for each other. Those of you here who have been wronged by a member of the body of Christ here at Park, you need to forgive that person and love them to, to show all who are watching that God is a God of love. We recognize as Christians our inability to serve others without Christ because of our sin. We are so aware of how often we fall short. It's one of the reasons why we confess our sins every single week and remind ourselves that we've been forgiven in Christ. Christians believe the Bible, and the Bible says that every heart is deceitful and desperately sick. It is only the Lord who can change a person's heart. Our hearts were changed when we realized that all sinners, us being one of them, deserves severe punishment. But God, in his mercy, sent Christ to take our place. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. He was dead and buried, the Bible says, and God raised him from the dead. Now he gives the opportunity to everybody who calls upon his name to, as Lord and Savior to have life. Friend, if you are here and you're not a Christian, we want you to know that God loves you. We want you to experience the life that God has for you in in Christ. God sent Jesus to die for the ungodly. We love because he first loved us. And I pray that you would know the love of God in a small way by witnessing the love of the people of God here at Park. So, beloved, Park, can we always make a, a commitment to grow in our love for each other? We, we must not waver in loving one another. Because the community around us is watching. When people come into our midst, they need to see the love of God manifested among us. So let me ask you a question. Who can you love better? Is there someone in our congregation that's not like you, maybe age or ethnicity, that need to go out of your way to love? Have you harbored bitterness in your heart against anybody? Are you angry with someone and have not resolved it? Our love helps people find Christ. Hear me. Our love, our unity, our community helps people find Christ. And if they find Christ, they find eternal life. It is, it is urgent that we love each other well. Never underestimate the power of love between the people of God. The Christians in Thyatira were a loving people. The Bible says they were actually growing in their love. But it was their love, not according to the truth, that set their faith in turmoil. The third thing, the tolerant people of God, the tolerant people of God. Love is not total agreement. 
True love has a corrective punch to it. I love my kids when enough to correct them when they are wrong. And I hope my friends, hear me now, friends, uh, if I'm in the wrong, I hope you love me enough to tell me that I'm in the wrong. Uh, or when I have a hair misplaced. Thank you, Ashley. Um, love without truth is dangerous. And that's what we see here in, in Thyatira. They had a, had a, had a love, but it, it was not a love according to the truth. It kind of paved the way for a compromising spirit in the church. Look at the Bible, Revelation 2.20. But I have this against you. You, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. See that word there? Tolerate. You tolerate this false teaching. And they're seducing. They're luring my people away into sin. You know, those are their stories throughout the history of the world where children are being seduced by some kind of evil villain. Just Disney's a pretty evil plot line. There's a, there's a character that's being seduced to, to follow in the ways of evil. And that person is always looked at as negative. If someone is going to try to seduce my children, you better believe I'm going to speak up and, and, and correct them. And yet, in the church, when we allow false teaching, we are allowing seduction to happen to God's children. There is no uniform agreement here about who this Jezebel is in Thyatira. Some would say she's a, she's a real woman uh, who was prophesying in the early days of the church. Uh, and we know Jezebel was the, the wife of King Ahab. And really, as, as, as after her life, she was kind of known for false teaching. Really for false teaching, for bowing down to idols. She was herself caused Ahab to worship uh, Baal. Uh, but she was also one who kind of promoted sexual uh, immorality. Some would say this is an actual woman who's, who's prophesying. Women did prophesy in the first century. We know that from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 5. You know, others believe that, that Jezebel was more of symbolic of the entire church. You know, in, in 2 John, Jesus, or, uh, John's, John writes of the church as the elect lady. So this could be a, maybe a, a picture of a group within the church as a, having a Jezebel spirit, identifying more of a, a group. Some others would say that Jezebel was actually the wife of the leader of, of the church. Now, some translations, even in the earliest ones, it doesn't say that woman, Jezebel, but it says your wife, Jezebel. Woman and wife in the Greek are, are very synonymous. can be translated both ways. Either way, whoever Jezebel is, whether one woman or a group representing this Jezebel spirit, she was teaching compromise. She was encouraging the church to participate in the cult worship by sacrificing to idols and engaging in the sexual and moral activities. So she was probably saying things like, it's not that big a deal if you eat food sacrificed to idols. If you want to continue to progress and move up the ranks in your, in your guild, you're going to have to do certain things. I know that you don't want to engage in sexual immorality, but it's just a physical thing, and the, the spiritual and the physical are, are different. Now, she's saying things that are wrong and that are twisted and trying to get the church to compromise their beliefs. 
It's a clear violation of God's word, as we know throughout history, but also the word of the church in the first century. We, we know from the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15:29, the church came together and decided what the, the difference between Jews and Gentiles, this is what they agreed on. Acts 15:29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Now remember, the church was immersed with the culture. Right? They were immersed in this demand to participate in cult practices. And if the church refused, they would be ostracized. They would lose their jobs. They would lose maybe their homes. I don't know about you, but if when you're hungry and you're starving for food, and they says, if you do this, you can work and have money and live. That's one thing. Now, what if it was your wife and your children who were starving? Do you see why this appeal is so seductive? Just go along with it. Don't you want comfort? Don't you want your kids to eat? We should just go along with it so that our culture, that our families can survive. Now, we don't know the reasons of this woman, Jezebel. We don't even know, know the reasons why the people of God in, in Thyatira will, will tolerate this woman. But knowing what I see happening today throughout um, the American West, you know, the West as well as the, the American church, I, I think this, this spirit is really driven by love. Just a misunderstanding of it. I think the idea of, of being tolerant to people who disagree with you or being tolerant of those who practice a different lifestyle that you may see in the scriptures I think the motivation may be love. They're trying to love people. They just not, may not be loving people well. The church wants to love people, so they feel like they should allow people to live the way they want. Who am I to judge, they say. And I think genuinely they mean that in the right spirit. We are taught in our culture that acceptance and tolerance is the highest form of love. And our culture wears that kind of love as a badge of honor. Churches today hang rainbow flags on their buildings to show the world that this is a place of love. We love all people, they would say. But in so doing, they're denying biblical love. Biblical love is accepting all people in Christ. If one turns to Christ, his arms and the arms of his church should be wide open. I pray that if anyone comes to our church that has a history of sexual immorality of all sorts of degrees, I pray our arms are open wide when they come to Christ. I pray that we are so welcoming and accepting all people because we understand that we ourselves have sinned and wronged God. And we want to welcome them in. But we want to welcome them in through Christ. That's your only hope is coming to Christ. The cross is the greatest picture of love the world has ever known. And in the cross of, of love, what do we see? We see condemnation. The cross says sin deserves to be punished, and punished severely. The cross does not make light of sin. God hates sin so much that He sent His Son to bear it in His own body. On a tree. Jesus, before he took the cross, 
was so moved with grief that he was sweating drops of blood saying, Lord, is there another way? And every time we diminish sin, we're diminishing the cross. The cross does not take sin lightly. It cannot be tolerated. Friends, in our efforts to love people, let us not condemn them by allowing them to continue in sin. The Bible says, do not be deceived. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a a laundry list of sins. If you love your sin more than you love Jesus, the Bible gives you no hope. But if you turn from your sins and you trust in Christ, our advocate who stands before the Father on our behalf, you have life. And if you allow them to continue in sin, you are condemning them. But if you're saying, come to Christ, come to Christ, find life. Beloved, we cannot tolerate false teaching. False teaching breeds false hope. And false hope sends people to hell. It is very serious. So it doesn't matter what the motivation is. In churches across America, their motivation may be pure. They may be thinking they're doing the right thing. They may be motivated by love, the greatest of Christian virtues. And they could still be dead wrong. The motivation does not matter. We are called to deal with this sin with kindness and patience because God is a God who wants us to repent. I love this little picture here, this fourth point, the patient son of God, the patient son of God. Those of you who are keeping time, I'm on point number four and I have two left. Hopefully these other ones are going to be a little quicker. Um, The patient son of God. God hates sin, beloved, but he also hates false teaching. And although he hates it, he's patient with his people. What a lesson we can learn from God here. That he is patient with people when they're struggling. Look what the Bible says. I gave her time. Verse 21. I gave her time to repent. But he refused, she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now the world often portrays God as vengeful and rash, and harsh, rash, when judgment is discussed. How could a loving God, they say, punish people? But how could a good God not hate sin? How could a good God not hate evil? And we all know, beloved, when we look inside our own heart, we see the seeds of evil there. The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. And yet even here, we see a patient God. What does he say? He has given her time. To repent. Even after this letter is written, God offers grace. It says that I will I, I will bring down punishment and, and harsh judgment upon them unless they repent. Even in this harsh letter, he's offering them an opportunity to come. So can I just pause for a moment and say for those of you who are either tolerating sin in your family, in this church, or living in sin, outrightly or in secret. 
Can I urge you to repent? Can I just plead with you today? Repent. God has been patient with you. Do not presume on his patience tomorrow. Continue in your sin no more. Before I became a pastor, I ran a group home for teenage mothers. Uh, girls would come to us uh, with their babies, and we were basically their last stop. Uh, they would um, not be able to go anywhere else, couldn't find a foster home, so they'd come to us. And we'd try to, to care for them and, and help their, their child uh, grow. And I cannot tell you how many times I sat with a girl in my office pleading with them, begging them to turn from their, their sin, to trust in Christ. Don't continue to live this way. And yet sometimes they didn't listen. By God's grace, some listened. Some repented. Some lived unto the Lord and are doing great now. But others didn't. And eventually, if someone continues to do things that are harmful for themselves and harmful for their child and harmful for the community, we had to put them out of the home. And we put them out of the home. It's one of the saddest days of your life. You see two caseworkers driving in separate cars. You see the mom getting one, going in one direction. You see the baby going in another. I think that's a good picture of what happens to us who don't repent. Those of us who don't repent will go one direction to outer darkness, but those who do will go to our Father, will care for us. Because sin... False teaching never stops with the person who's doing it. Look what the text says here. It says that um, this false teaching was tolerated. actually gave birth to others who followed that teaching. It says, I will throw her into the sickbed. I will, I will punish this person, this community, but also I will take care of her children. She has spawned others who, who had false teaching with them. It's like gangrene. It affects the whole body. The disease part has to be cut off or it will spread. Do not presume on God's patience tomorrow. Repent today. We don't know when God's going to say, that's enough. We know how patient with God is today. Repent. Turn to him. Because even here, God is not only concerned with the church of Thyatira. He's always, always concerned with all his churches. Look at verse 23. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Anytime you see someone deal with the harsh effects of sin, I pray that that would wake you up and remind you that God is being patient to you. He's being kind to you, that you would turn as well. God is the one with blazing eyes of fire and feet burnished with bronze. He will give all what they deserve, according to their works. Or, the beauty of God, He will give you mercy. And you will count the works of Christ's righteousness on your behalf. Trust in the work of Christ, crucified and risen again. Number five, the steadfast people of God. By God's grace, here in Thyatira, there were some that did not participate in this false teaching. They held fast in faith to the once and for all delivered to the saints. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, you have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast until what you have, until you, till I come. The deep things of Satan here probably are referring to all the things that happen in, in the pagan uh, rituals, the cultist practices uh, of the guilds, the temple of Apollo. Some, by God's grace, remain innocent of these things, holding true to the word of Christ. 
when I was preparing this message, I just got this burden in my heart for our kids. You know, a lot of times people share their testimonies and they, they'll say, I have a, I have a boring testimony. Uh, I was raised in the church and came to Christ at six or seven and, you know, they almost are, are ashamed of that. Oh, let it never be so. Parents, can we do all that we can to protect our kids from the deep things of Satan? The deep things of Satan that are in, in our world that are trying to seduce their young hearts. I pray that we would have testimony after testimony after testimony of the kids in this church who says, I was raised by godly parents in a godly church and I came to Christ at a young age. And let us spare them. Let us spare them from the deep things of Satan in our world. Let's keep them innocent of that. By the grace of God. The church here, there was a segment that was faithful. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any additional burdens. Simply hold on to what you have. And what do they have? They have Christ. That's why we sing that song this morning now. Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Let my song forever be my only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Friends, I pray this is our prayer until he comes. All of Revelation is kind of building toward that moment when Christ is going to descend and bring his children with him. Great Baptist missionary Adoniram Judson once said, The motto of every missionary, whether preacher, printer, or schoolmaster, ought to be steadfast for life. I love that. Friends, there's coming definitive crossroads for the American church for the evangelical church in America. We'll face many choices on whether to, to, to bow to economic prosperity, to participate with the cultural idols, or to hold fast to Christ. But even though the decision may appear hard, it's really simple. Hold fast to Christ. That's what Jesus says here. And he kind of gives us the reason right here at the end, the reigning Son of God, the reigning Son of God, the decision is easy because Jesus is the sovereign king over all history. Why would you look another place, he says? What choice, other choice is there? Hear his words. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who says, The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus ends his letter to this struggling Thyatiran church, reminding them that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he will destroy the nations with the strength of his power. And he's drawing here on, on Psalm chapter 2, which Grant read for us. It's a great picture of a, the messianic promise of the, the, the king who's going to come. If you also have time, read Daniel chapter 2, which kind of un unpacks the same vision. There's a true king who will rule over the nations. But isn't it amazing here? It's utterly amazing that the true king is allowing us to rule with him. We are heirs with Christ. The morning star is, is just another picture of the eternal reign of Christ. As the, the stars were a symbol of authority, as, as the one shown as the ruler 
Apollo has the, the view of the, the God of the sun, but the saints of God will receive the morning star as they reign with Christ forever. Romans 8, 15-17 For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we also may be glorified with Him. God has promised His daughters and sons to reign with Him over the nations. But we may have to suffer now. Our suffering for Christ is but a short night that will turn into an everlasting day. Friends, life is full of choices. We will be confronted with options, but the choice is always simple. You choose Christ. You choose the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You choose the bright and morning star. You choose Him who died and rose again. You choose Him who will hold us fast. You choose Jesus. Because there is no other choice. Father, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for the Lord Jesus. We thank You for His amazing grace. God, we thank You that... Um, that you are a patient God, that you love us so well, that you pour out your mercy upon us, which we don't deserve. God, I pray for our people. I pray that we would not tolerate sin. I pray that you would allow us to, um, to be protected from the deep things of Satan. God, I pray that we as a body would hold fast to what we have. And because we have Christ, we have everything. So God, let us not waver. Let us be steadfast. In Jesus' name, amen.